right. If you would, open with me in your Bibles to Psalm 31 this week. We will be just in Psalm 31. It's uh, quite a long psalm. And once you have found it, uh, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. You make me, you take me out of the net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction and you have known the distress of my soul and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. Rather, you have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity, and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead, and I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, and as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in both pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you, and you have worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. So this week, Psalm 31, and uh, the main idea or the title of this psalm is mature faith. Mature faith. And Psalm 31 deals with something that I think is important for us as a, a young church plant to, to keep in mind and to keep in, uh, uh, keep in our discipleship journeys. And uh, many of us, you know, being young in the faith and young in, in life itself, uh, the life experience that we have often becomes a dominant informant of what we believe and how we walk through this world. And one of the ways that uh, God and his design for uh, for society has kind of tempered that in, in young people 
is by giving us older, wiser, more mature uh, believers, mothers, fathers, uh, older uh, people who can guide us, uh, who can help uh, kind of temper our personal experiences with lived years of experience that can inform and, and often correct our ill-informed uh, experiences. We know that uh, while that is a good thing that God has given to us, one thing that even supersedes that in terms of both uh, importance and in terms of, um, in terms of uh, longevity in life is, is his word. So he gives us both his word to, to guide us and to teach us and also uh, the counsel of other more mature believers um, if we were raised in a household of faith, he gives us parents who, who do the same kind of thing. Um, all of those are things that are associated with mature faith. And as young believers, we have to recognize that a mature faith is, is something that's marked out, not necessarily in terms of extravagance or in terms of uh, passion that is untamable. Uh, mature faith is, is more so marked by uh, what you see here in Psalm 31. Uh, mature faith lives kind of on the ground in, in a daily reality of both pain and, and trust, of both uh, heartache and disappointment, uh, and also sure confidence in the God uh, to whom we believe. So this psalm, Psalm 31, uh, in 24 verses kind of goes through a couple of cycles of both uh, pain and, uh, and affliction, and then uh, assertion of confidence in God, and then it kind of does the same thing over and over again. And it's because the psalm written by David uh, is a mark of what it looks like as a Christian to go to the Lord in prayer with a mature faith and kind of bring your problems to him. And it just kind of walks that cycle out uh, in, in a number of different ways. And because it's not so clean cut, uh, I'm not going to try to make any big distinctions or big differences as we, as we go through it. There's not any neat like one, two, three logical order to it. It just kind of uh, cycles between confidence in God and then despair and then an assertion again of confidence in God, and then despair, and then it kind of concludes with this uh, final confident statement, not only for the person, but also for um, anyone who would listen to and then hear this psalm. Uh, something that's probably true uh, to revisit in general about all the psalms, and you might wonder, you know, aside from being poems, why are they assembled together? Why are they put uh, in scripture? Why were they recorded? And the Psalms, for a long time in the history of both the church and the Jewish community before uh, the inauguration of the church, was uh, essentially a songbook. So just like we have songs that we like to sing to remind us of truth, that's what the Psalms were for the, the ancient uh, believers and even for the ancient uh, Israelites. And so this Psalm is not just something that's personally true for David, but he wrote it as something that could be a corporate reminder of praise for, for all believers. So although David is talking about his specific experiences, he's also expanding those experiences into the life of every uh, mature follower of Yahweh. And so that extends not just to David and his immediate audience, but also to all of those who would call Yahweh their God as well, uh, which includes uh, Christians today. So the psalm is relevant not only for its initial audience, but also for us today who uh, serve the same God and uh, face the same kind of world, broken and riddled by sin. So, uh, and then oh, one more thing before we really get into the meat of the psalm uh, is kind of grounding it in terms of worldview, in terms of why we're going over it. Last week in Psalm 24, we spent a lot of time just building the foundation of the biblical worldview, which assumes God as the creator and all other things kind of extend beyond that as a result of God being the creator. So, if it's true what Psalm 24 says about God, that he created everything and the whole world is his and the fullness thereof, if that's true, 
than how we live in the world, how we conduct ourselves, and even how we deal with problems and face difficulties in life, all of that is informed by the assertion that God is the one who created the world. And Psalm 31 kind of goes very nicely with Psalm 24 in that way because Psalm 31 tells us if God is God, if he is really the sovereign creator and the sustainer and the, uh, the one who is in charge of it all, if he's really that, then how we go about suffering, how we deal with pain and affliction, how we deal with disappointment in life is not informed by what soothes our, what soothes our hearts. It's not informed by what other wisdom of the world tells us. It's informed by how God tells us to approach him as the author of life to, uh, to suffer well. And so this psalm kind of sets forth, based on that biblical worldview of Psalm 24, how do we engage with pain and affliction and, and hurt in this life? And that's an important thing because as, uh, as people who live in a world that's broken and uh, facing a lot of pain all the time, it's important that as Christians we know that the Christian worldview lives on the ground in reality, in the real world, it doesn't just live off into theological assertions and never really find its place uh, in reality. And that's important, and you'll see that as we move in the psalm, that this gets messy and it's painful, uh, and nevertheless, God is still God, and we can still trust in him. So look with me again in verse 1 of the psalm, and I'll read verse 1 and 2 together, and you're going to see this uh, mature faith kind of coming out immediately in those early verses. He says, First, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me and rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. So Psalm 31 uh, starts right off with an assertion that God is the one in whom David, the psalmist, takes refuge. So even before the problem is lifted up, even before the concerns are brought to God, even before the complaints and the working through the pain of the situation is brought forth, first and foremost is a theological assertion that God is the one who David takes refuge in. He's not saying he goes anywhere else. He says in a confident way, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge? And then a petition off of that or an ask for God off of that assertion that God is his refuge is he says, let me never be put to shame. And then why should David not ever be put to shame? He says in the next line, in your righteousness, deliver me. So David starts off with God is God and I take refuge in him. And then he asks God not to let him be put over to shame. And that's going to become clear later on why he's asking not to be put to shame. And then he, if, if you were to ask the question, well, why should God respond to David? Why should God save David from his situation? Why should God be David's refuge? Why? David doesn't ground it in his own worthiness of God's rescuing. He does not ground it in his own ability to earn God's favor. He doesn't even ground it in the fact that he's an Israelite. He grounds it in God's righteousness. He says, in your righteousness, deliver me. And that's an interesting thing because when we typically think about God's righteousness, we can think about it in a whole host of ways, mainly his holiness, his justice, uh, and his righteousness is kind of associated with the fact that he's all good all the time, and it's usually contrasted with human unrighteousness. What's interesting here is a part of God's righteousness, at least in terms of how David is using the term, is associated with God's ability to be faithful to the promises that he has given in Scripture. God's righteousness then is associated with his ability to preserve his people, his ability to preserve David by extension. And we know this because David is making the argument that if God does not allow him to be put to shame, it's going to be on the basis of God's righteousness that that happens. 
not on the basis of David's worthiness, not on the basis of anything else, on the basis of God's righteousness, this will be true. And that's interesting because typically we think about an appeal to God's mercy or to God's love. And certainly those things would be true as well. It's, it's interesting, though, that David does not appeal to any of those things. He appeals to the righteousness of God for his salvation. And that's going to become true because God, as a promise-keeping God, who has given promises to his people, is righteous when he keeps those promises. And so his righteousness, which we assert in Scripture, is dependent then on his ability to keep his promises. And so many of the promises in Scripture then must come true or else other claims about God, like him being righteous, become untrue. And so it's very important that when we pray to God, we keep in mind that it's not just that he has said things and he may or may not follow up on those things. We can with confidence go to him because he has said things. And because he's righteous, he will complete the things that he has put forth in his word. And that's a, it's a source of confidence for David when he prays. And it can be a source of confidence for us as well. Because many of those same promises about persevering and keeping his people apply to God's covenant people, his elect people, which is more than just ethnic Israel. It's, it's all those who are children of Abraham, heirs of Abraham, who stay in the lineage of faith with him. So it applies to even us today who call Christ Lord and who are found in him. Verse 2 is uh, maybe a more intimate plea then. For David uh, asks God now to incline his ear. And this is uh, an anthropomorphism of God. God, in fact, does not have ears. He is a spiritual being. But the, the euphemism is uh, for God to listen or pay attention to David's plea. And so what he's saying there is, incline your ear to me. He's saying, listen to what I'm saying. Rescue me speedily. Now he's asking not just for a rescue, but also for a hasty kind of rescue, meaning he's probably in a great deal of anguish and suffering at the moment. And then he says, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. And so this petition, be a rock of refuge, is something that is commonly used in the Psalms, that God is a rock and a refuge, a fortress, a great salvation for his people. That language is very familiar to us if we grew up in the church. And a rock of refuge is uh, a place where you can find physical salvation from any kind of affliction. And David ascribes that kind of imagery to God, who is his rock of refuge. That does not mean that God becomes a rock. It means that God is his source of protection. So he's using poetic language to express what God is like and who God is and how he is faithful. And you'll notice that as soon as he asks it in verse 2, you might find it strange that then immediately afterwards in verse 3, he asserts that, in fact, this has already been answered. He says, verse 2, be a rock and refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. And then in verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Now that seems strange because why would David ask God for something that immediately afterwards he says God already is for him? Why is that true? If God is already his rock and fortress, why does David have to go and ask him to be that for him? Why is that so? And it kind of presents for us a, a truth about prayer that we see all over scripture, which is although we know God's character to be a certain way, we are nevertheless told in scripture to pray that God be true to his word, that he be who he says he is. And that doesn't mean that God would not follow through if we didn't pray. Those are foolish questions to ask, and David doesn't ask those kinds of questions. And we're not to, be, to understand that because David asks God to be his rock, that then God all of a sudden becomes that for him. Because David says, you are my rock, not you will become my rock. 
which means it's not a sequential ordering of events. He's saying that God is his rock. And on the basis of God being his rock, being who he says he is, David then asks, you know, earlier in that petition for him to actually be that for him. And it presents this kind of weird dynamic because as Christians, we know lots of theological truths about God. And then when we go to the Lord in prayer, we're also told to pray that God be who he says he is, that he uh, be what his word puts him forth as. And that's not because our prayers change who God is or change reality around us. But in many ways, those prayers allow God to work on our hearts and reveal who he really is and what he is really like. For us to experience or taste the uh, fortress of God for David, uh, that happens when he prays and it's shown that God is in fact his fortress. It's not that God becomes a fortress, it's that he always was. And to David, it's revealed peculiarly how he is a fortress in that specific moment. So it's interesting that David prays for something that God is, but it really presents a dynamic of how we pray as well. We pray, for example, to God, for God to be merciful and gracious. We pray for him to give us this day our daily bread. We ask him uh, as Christians to forgive us our sins, all of which are things that we're already told he has done. He has forgiven us every sin in Christ Jesus. He has given us, uh, released us from a bondage of sin and, and given us over to righteousness in Christ. And yet we pray that he would release us from sin and make us more righteous in Christ. So either we are inconsistent with our own theology or there's this kind of sovereignty paradigm going on where we're living into the promises that God has put forth before us. And prayer is one of the means by which we access that kind of grace. And that's seen here even in David. It's not a theological inconsistency. Rather, it's this uh, beautiful submission to God's sovereignty and uh, entering into engaging with this God who is sovereign and who is true to his word and to his promises. In verse 4, then, we see that uh, David is now going to spell specifically out how God, in fact, does save him, how he is a fortress to him. And he says in verse 4, You take me out of the net that they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. So how is God a refuge or a fortress or a salvation for David? Well, first and foremost, he rescues David from this net or this snare that has been laid out before him. You can think about this language like a, a trap that is sprung by someone who's waiting or luring David in. And if David walks over the trap, then he'll be ensnared or caught in the trap. And so he says that uh, God actually rescues him from that trap that was hidden or laid before him. So in, in one sense, we're told uh, one of the ways in which David is suffering in this psalm. And this is not the only way he puts forth, but one way in which suffering enters into David's life in this psalm is through external enemies or people who are seeking David's harm. And for David, if you, if you recall at all the story of David or his life, that is certainly true. In fact, much of his story or the drama of the plot of David's life is simply driven by one opponent after another opponent after another opponent who's seeking to kill him, who are seeking to put him to death, who are seeking to have him brought before them in prison and in chains. All of his life really is driven by that kind of genre. So it, sh it shouldn't uh, surprise us when David thanks the Lord for saving him from such kind of people. Now, while that's true in David's life, it's also true of most Christians as well that we have those who are seeking our harm. Now, that might not be true of you individually at this moment right now, but it is certainly true if you're part of the Christian church that there are those who are out to uh, be against the church, who have set their heart and their uh, affections and desires against the will of God and against his bride and who are seeking its undoing, its, its corruption, its brokenness, its um, exposure to the world. 
And people who hate the church and who seek any Christian and anyone who affirms Christ, they seek that that person would not have life work out well for them. They seek to get Christians fired or removed from jobs because Christians don't think the right kind of way. Um, And so that's certainly true even in the church today. So if you've not personally encountered a personal kind of enemy, we're promised, and this is the promise given to us in the New Testament, that the world in fact will hate us because they hated Christ first. And we're not supposed to be surprised by that. And matter of fact, we're supposed to just pray how David does here, that God would rescue us and save us from such kind of opposition. And that we don't really fight our own battles in that sense, but we allow him to rescue us and deliver us from that affliction. And the ultimate vote of confidence here is seen in verse 5, where he says a kind of an ultimate statement of trust in God. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit, for you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, it's interesting because David's praying for redemption, and then he's also asking for redemption, and then he's saying, you have redeemed me. Now, it's, it's tempting, I think, because of the, the language of justification that's true all throughout Scripture and salvation, that we look at the word redeemed here and we say this is a, a theological term, that David is being saved spiritually from his sin, and in that sense, he's being redeemed. And while it's true that the word redeemed can, in some context, mean spiritual salvation, justification, In this immediate context, it's more clear that the word is being used of a physical bodily redemption, that he's being uh, saved from his enemies bodily, that his enemies who seek to kill him and physically afflict him, he's been rescued and saved in that way from them. So in that sense, he has been redeemed. What's interesting in that that same light is this verse, verse 5, into your hand I commit my spirit, is a a phrase that it kind of has become uh, a specific term used by the martyrs of the church throughout most of the history of the church as kind of their final words before they perish. We know that this is true even of Christ on the cross where he says, into your hand, Father, I commit my spirit. And this the same is true of many of the martyrs in church history who with David uh, apply so much trust to God, so much assurance that God is who he says he is, that he is the rock and the fortress and the redemption of his people, that even unto death they yield up their spirit to him and commit and entrust themselves to the one who does save. Now, what's interesting about that is uh, Christ uses it, David uses it, martyrs use it, um, and we too as Christians are invited to trust God to that degree. Now, many of us who live in the West are not going to be probably forced into a martyr-like situation. Uh, Perhaps if we become missionaries and we go overseas somewhere where there's more hostility towards the gospel, this terminology might become more and more clear to us. But we can certainly say one thing about this verse which is that if we as Christians in the West uh, can affirm this in any way, we know that this is kind of a rejection of what we would call the health, wealth, and prosperity theology of much of Christendom today. Because a, a mature faith, as laid out here in the text, is corroborated by both a suffering and affliction, a trust in God, and a trust even into death and destruction that never doubts God because of all the pain and suffering that he brings. And that's in complete contrast to the the God of the health and wealth movement, which is more akin to a God who who gives you good things because you trust in him. Or a God who uh, will never ask you to commit your spirit or your life to death for him because he's an abundant God who would never allow such a thing to happen to his people. But scripture tells us that God both loves us and he cares for us and he cherishes us. And yet we will be hated and persecuted and reviled in this world. And both of those are true, and that does not in any way violate God's goodness. 
So because God is not going to save every Christian in every circumstance from every affliction in this life, that does not mean that God is somehow no longer a good God. And as a mature Christian, we have to understand that because while we might not face cancer right now, or we might not know many people in our lives who've lost their life to disease or affliction or persecution in that kind of way, we know that the longer we live, one of the guarantees we have in this life, a broken world filled with sin, is that we will face such kinds of pain. And if we believe that God is only good if he physically delivers people in this life, our theology will begin to shake and crumble and eventually it will fracture underneath us because the theology is not what the Bible puts forth. Instead, scripture puts forth this idea that God is good and a strong refuge, even in spite of pain and suffering, and even pain and suffering unto death. That in no way violates his goodness. It in no way violates his reliability. And that's because this life is not all that there is. We are told in scripture that there is a life beyond this one, a judgment and eternal life that awaits all of the faithful. And in that way, God will redeem and save and abundantly bless all of those who are in him. And that's not something that is a light doctrine to believe because the very goodness of God kind of rests on the truth that eternal life is all that he says it will be. Because if not, as, a, as the author of Ecclesiastes tells us, if we just look under the sun, meaning at this life alone, all we're going to see is good and bad happening to both good and bad people. That sometimes bad things happen to good people, sometimes blessings happen to good people. But if under the sun that's true, then we can just look at pleasure and goodness and we see that under the sun all this is good or vanity of vanities. But if you look to the end of Ecclesiastes, he doesn't affirm that there's only things under the sun that are true. He says actually that beyond this life, beyond what's under the sun, there's an eternal life. And because of that reality, because of that reality, it's better to live in accordance with God and be faithful to him as opposed to live as though this life is all that there is. So we as Christians can simultaneously say that we commit our lives into the hands of God, even unto death and that we trust him for an eternal kind of redemption and salvation, which he puts forth in his word. And we know that that's not only asked of us. It was first modeled by Christ Jesus, who does that on the cross and ultimately redeems all of the faithful. It's also modeled in the book of Acts by Stephen, who, as he's being killed and stoned, he see, he's entering into eternal life and essentially trusting his soul even unto death in that way. And so we're modeled in both the examples of the uh, people in the pages of scripture and we're also told here in the psalm by David that we can give ourselves over to death and God can still be good. And a mature faith requires that to be true because it's more realistic in this life to live in that way than it is to live in a non-real kind of world where bad things never happen to Christians because that's just not true. And scripture never tells us that such an example or reality is true. Now, this then moves to a theology or maybe a revisiting of what's seen in verse 6 and 7 which is this idea that there's a God who, if we love him, we have to hate other kinds of things. And verse 6 puts this forth as, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. Now, this is not an ultimate kind of hatred where the, David is saying that he, he has this vile disgust towards people who, uh, who worship idols. What he's saying, uh, uh, almost like a comparative hatred, that because he loves God, he has to as an extension, hate people who have trusted things other than God for salvation or for worth. He says, those who pay regard to worthless idols, those people I hate because while they put their trust not in the one true God, that's the God that I love. And so by comparison, I cannot 
uh, give account to people who love those kinds of things. This is a rejection of uh, what we would say as a, a pluralistic kind of worldview, where David is saying it's not enough for him to love God and for other people to love whoever they love, but in fact, because God is true, you have to reject any kind of falsehood about other kinds of worthless idols that could or could not be believed in. Because the reality is, as much as we would want to skirt around the issue, everyone puts their trust in something. That's either the one true God, or it's a worthless idol. And in the psalm, there's, there's no other option. It's either God, or it's an idol. But some, everyone trusts something. Even the most uh, ardent atheist puts their trust in something, whether that's a human institution, or science, or even their own wisdom and discernment. They trust in something. And if it's not the one true God, it's a false idol, and we have to say that we hate such ideologies because they lie about reality and they lie about the one true and living God who is good. Verse 7 then puts forth uh, this idea of rejoicing and being glad in God's steadfast love. And you'll notice he's rejoicing and being glad, not yet for deliverance, because he already says that he's living in affliction and asking for deliverance. He's rejoicing and being glad because you have seen my affliction and because you have known the distress of my soul. So David is saying, even while he has not yet been uh, rescued, he says in verse 8, he has not yet been given over to the enemy. And he says that because God has seen his affliction, because God has known or understood or looked at his circumstance and his situation, that, God, that David can now rejoice because God has paid attention to him. And as Christians, this is a comfort because we don't have to wait until we're delivered from a circumstance before we can start praising and rejoicing and trusting in God for his goodness. We can affirm his goodness even in the moment of affliction and even in the moment of distress because God has heard us, he has seen us, he has paid attention to us, and he has known our distress. And that was true of God, Yahweh, in the Old Testament, but it becomes even more painfully clear to us in the New Testament. We have even more reason to believe in this because the author of Hebrews tells us that God not only told us to live a perfect life, but he himself did that. And he not only uh, says he understands cognitively the pain and the suffering and the sin we deal with, but he actually entered into that world and lived and suffered in, in a way that such as every single person he has shared that experience with them. So not only does he know our affliction cognitively, but he knows our affliction uh, experientially and intimately. He knows our distress in that same way. And so he can relate to our distress in a way that's unlike any other deity of any other religion out there. He has entered into our pain and he has conquered our pain. And it's out of that basis that in the New Testament we can assert confidence back into these words. And he says that uh, we've not been delivered over, David has not been delivered over, and rather his feet have been set in a broad place or established before God, which is simply to underscore the idea that he has not been given over, he's rooted, he's grounded, and God is faithful to him. Now, this is a mature faith because, remember, he's affirming God's goodness and joy in spite of living through the circumstance still. He, he says he's not been given over, but he certainly has not said here that he's been delivered. He's not said that his enemies have gone away. He's actually going to petition God in a moment more for additional afflictions and suffering that he's dealing with. So he's certainly not out of the woods, and nevertheless, he can rejoice in God despite being very much in the thick of it, just as he was when he started his petition. And only a mature faith can do that kind of thing. An immature faith would look for experience as a guiding post for what we can and can't affirm about God or what we can and cannot say 
about God. But a mature faith says, despite my lived experience, I know who God is, I know what he's like, and I'm going off of what he says, not what my environment around me says to me. So then he petitions again, because he's not out of the woods. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. Now this distress is unlike the first distress, because unlike, uh, it's not external enemies who are seeking his, uh, he, seeking his harm. In this case, it's his own sin. He says, my eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Now this is a uh, full body experience of sin and suffering and pain. And if you're a Christian and you know what it is to live with sin and war against that sin and lose to sin, then you could probably relate to what David says here, which is uh, such a desire to be rid of sin that when sin is felt and felt on an ongoing basis, your eye wastes with grief, your soul and your body ache for a yearning or longing to be rid of this, that your life is spent in sorrow, your years are with sighing, your strength fails and your bones waste away, all because of the sin that you experience. When you taste the goodness of God and you nevertheless see his righteousness and his goodness and then you live in sin or you fall to sin, it's a kind of affliction or a grief that's very deep-seated. And for many Christians who are walking out sanctification, this can lead to a kind of depression or a kind of brokenness over their sin that is almost to a point of despair. And a mature faith says, yes, I'm broken. Yes, I'm afflicted. Yes, my sin is what's driving all of this pain. But nevertheless, I can pray to God for him to be gracious to me in my distress. I don't abandon God as though he somehow no longer loves me because I still sin. I don't abandon my faith because God promised me deliverance and I'm not delivered yet. The mature faith can say both, be gracious to me for I'm in distress, and then fully enumerate the distress and take it before God in prayer. That's a mature kind of faith. Uh, as, as opposed to an immature kind of faith, which would look at our sin and our distress and say, oh, if I've sinned, I can't go to God because I need to clean up my sin first. Many young Christians think in this kind of way about their sin. And while it's true, we should take our sin seriously. A mature faith understands that taking sin seriously doesn't mean we cut off community with God because he's the very source of life for which we go to deal with our sin. So it's okay to be broken over sin, but that doesn't mean we don't go to God in prayer. Both are true and both are required for us to have a mature faith. We need to recognize that we have sin. In 1 John, we're told, let no one say that he is without sin because such a person is a liar. But we can go to God with that sin and have confidence that he can, in fact, deal with it and save us from our distress. And in this, we see kind of the two afflictions that are set forth in the psalm, an external op opposition and an internal temptation, both of which are kind of the, the substance of Christian affliction. Either you're afflicted from your internal sin or you're afflicted externally from those who seek to be against you. And that's most likely when you're living in faithfulness towards God. So if you're being faithful towards God, the world's going to hate you and it's going to seek to undo you. And if you're not living faithfully to God as a Christian, your internal conscience bears witness against you and causes you guilt. So on both sides of the aisle, living in faithfulness and living in disobedience, we have this kind of ongoing suffering and affliction that we experience in this life. And so if we know both of those things are true, we know that in order to actually live as a Christian, you need to have a faith that can deal with the reality of suffering kind of on an ongoing basis, either an internal suffering from sin or an external affliction from the world. But there's really no rest for a Christian. 
because we are pilgrims and wanderers in this world. We are not to be comfortable here and we are not at home here. So we're, we shouldn't be surprised when suffering kind of finds us out at every corner. It's just kind of the reality of our life. And then verse 11 uh, kind of uh, starts to repeat the cycle. So much of this is going to be uh, a much quicker look at the same kinds of problems. But you'll notice some of the same things that we've seen in those first 10 verses set out. He says, because all my adversaries, I've become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead and I've become a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many tear on every side as they scheme together against me and as they plot to take my life. So once again, he's talking about the external affliction of the world. And he's saying that these people who scheme against me, not only are they a problem, but they actually drive away acquaintances and friends who could be sources of comfort for me. And so he's left with really no one to find refuge in except for God. And he says, uh, essentially, I'm treated like one who is dead. I'm like a broken vessel. I hear the whispering on every side, people who scheme against me to take my life. This is true of David, certainly. And notice what he then says in verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me then from the hands of my enemies and from my persecutors. Notice again the contrast of true theology and a sovereign God and a petition of prayer for that theology to be true. He says, I trust in you. I say you're my God. My times or my life, my, my days and my nights are in your hand. Rescue me then from the hand of my enemies. Now, why would he have to ask for rescue from the hands of his enemies if he knows that he's in the hand of God, not in the hands of his enemies? He's both saying that this theology is true, that I'm in the hands of God, not delivered over to my enemies. And then nevertheless, rescue me from my lived or felt experience. He's both saying this is true and then asking that it be so in prayer. It's a, it's a sovereign God theology that has a real experiential relationship with God to trust him and to seek him in the suffering. And then he says in verse 16, make your face to shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. Now, what does that look like for David? Well, he's going to tell us in verse 17, 18 what it looks like. But the first thing to spell out is this language of make your face to shine upon your servant is an ask for blessing. It's a request of blessing. It's actually drawn from other places in scripture where we see the Levitical priests go before the nation and say, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. And David's asking that corporate blessing, even on his own individual life, saying, would you cause your face to shine upon your servant? So he's simultaneously saying he's in distress. He's saying, God is good. Rescue me from distress. Then don't just bring me back to neutral. Bless me. And that's a really confident display of who God is. He's saying that God can not only rescue him, but also can bless him in the midst of affliction and save him and now this time, not according to his righteousness, according to his steadfast love. And so he's kind of getting a full-orbed look at all the attributes of God and saying that there's a myriad of reasons why I can ask God to save me and to rescue me and to be who he is. And so he's going to not settle for just one. He's going to hit a few different ones. So righteousness in the first instance, and now he's on to steadfast love. And earlier, he, we didn't take a close look at it, but he says, for your name's sake, would you rescue me? And here, then, he spells out specifically what that would look like. O oh Lord... This is verse 17. Let me not be put to shame. For I call upon you, rather let the wicked be put to shame and let them go silently to Sheol. Let lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. 
So on the ground, what does it look like for God to bless him and to be righteous and to save him? Well, God won't give him over to shame, which he's likely feeling because his, his enemies are against him plotting and his neighbors are despising him and against him. So certainly shame would be a component of what he's going to feel. But then he says he calls to you, and instead of letting me not be put to shame, do more than that. Let justice be done. Let the wicked who conspire against me, let them be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. So let, without uh, praising God, they're going to go to the place of death to Sheol. Let lying lips be mute, which is in essence to say let that conspiring finally be silenced. Let the lies that they tell about you and about me, let those be silenced. And they speak these lies in both pride and contempt. And so his opponents are not only seeking harm against David, but they're also, in many cases in Scripture, seeking harm against David's God. And so David asks these lying lips to be mute, not only because they speak against him, but because they speak against his God as well. And they speak in pride and contempt out of their own arrogance. And this is true of all of God's enemies as well. We see this in Scripture where they speak out of turn and in falsehood about who God is. And then in verse 19, he's just, remember, asked God, and without being delivered, he's going to say in verse 19, Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored for those who fear you and which you worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. Verse 20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Now we see again in the psalm this contrast between what David is asking and what he's affirming to be true. In verse 16, 17, and 18, He's saying, God, would you keep me from being put to shame? Would you not let them speak lies against me? Would you shelter me? And then in verse 20, he says, in the cover of your presence, you hide them, meaning those who are faithful to you, and you hide them from the plots of men. So if David really believed that God hides him from the plots of men because he's one of the faithful, then why does he pray for God to hide him from the plots of men as one who is uh, protected in that way? Well, because he understands that God both promises it and that prayer is a means to access that promise from God. God does, in fact, save his people from the plots of men. And that doesn't stop David from praying for it. Because believing in a sovereign God doesn't stop us from engaging him in prayer. And we see that uh, even, again, despite not being rescued yet, he affirms in verse 19 that God is good, his goodness is abundant, that he has this almost treasure house of goodness that is stored up for his people, that he is a shelter on every side for them, and that he has done all of these things, delivered his people, saved them, protected them, been good to them. He's done all of these things in the sight of the children of mankind. Now that was true of Israel, who was delivered from Egypt and saved in that way, but it becomes even more painfully true in the New Testament, where Christ Jesus suffers and dies and is crucified and is resurrected on the third day, and he, he comes walking out of the grave. He appears to a great many people to, to where in the time of the New Testament, where, where Paul is engaging in apologetics with people who doubt the resurrection and who doubt Jesus, he says, you know that these things have not been done in some corner off in the world for no one to see, but they've been done plainly in the open. He was put on public trial. He was publicly executed and he publicly rose from the grave. God's faithfulness is not hidden from the sight of mankind. Paul even affirms this in the New Testament in Romans where he says that what's true about God is plainly obvious and people actually reject what's true about God. It's not as though God has done it in some dark corner for people to discover, but he has done it in plain sight for all to see and for his opponents to challenge maybe, but not for them to say it didn't happen. 
And this is true in the Old Testament of his faithfulness, and it becomes even more true in Jesus Christ, his ultimate display of faithfulness to save people from their sin. He says, you store them in their shelter, you protect them from the plots of men. And then that uh, really request of deliverance, that statement of God's true deliverance in verse 20 and verse 19, is then followed up by this, uh, let's say, approach to God in confident worship. And you'll notice that the, it, never in the psalm does it say that David is yet rescued. Never in the psalm does it yet say that David has been delivered. But he says again in verse 21, even probably assuming he's still in that same situation that he initially requests God to deliver him from, he says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Verse 22 is David acknowledging his own weakness. He says, I had said in my alarm, or if you look at your footnote, another way for that to be translated is I said in my haste. I said uh, almost out of, out of not knowing, out of not really having given the situation time to develop, I said in haste that I am cut off from your sight. But despite him speaking in haste, you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. He heard, and on the basis of him hearing, David says, blessed be the Lord for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. Now again, this is not even assuming salvation yet or rescue yet, but simply saying that God has heard him and God is good for having heard him. Verse 23, his now petition moves from his internal experience to kind of a general petition to the congregation of the faithful. He says, love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Now, on what grounds could David make that kind of a statement? In this situation, it's likely that he hasn't yet seen that play out. So what's he, what's he, why is he saying that? He's probably saying it for a multitude of reasons. One is that the previous scripture that he would have had access to, the Torah, would have detailed explicitly all the ways in which God, in fact, does that, preserves his faithful and abundantly pays the people who act in pride. The Torah is full of examples of those kinds of things taking place. But his own life is full of those examples. His own experience up until this point is likely full of those examples. And if you and I look at the testimony of the pages of scripture, the testimony of church history, and the testimony of our own life and the life of those who are mature believers who've gone before us, we know that they would attest to these same things. That even in spite of suffering in this moment, we know true things about God, that he preserves the faithful, that he abundantly repays those who act in pride, and that our lived experience, even if it's a very powerful and emotional experience, does not in any way uh, substitute or replace this truth about God. And the reason that's a mark of a mature faith is because it's particularly young, immature Christians who are prone to make the opposite mistake. To say that our experience dictates what's true about God and we can maybe doubt his goodness or doubt his justice or doubt his righteousness on the basis of what we experience or what we've seen other people have experienced. But if you look at the testimony of church history, it will sober you up about the kind of God that we serve, who faithfully delivers his people time after time after time. And so David here is modeling for us a response as believing people to say, verse 23, love the Lord, all you his saints. He doesn't say conditionally, if you know God to be good, he's saying God is good. It's not up for debate. Love the Lord. That's the right response put forth by David. And then verse 24, he says, be strong, let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. And in that is a surprising kind of person who peeks out of the group. And that's the person who's listening to this whole thing unfold, listening to this psalm, 
who when David's penning it down is likely reflecting and saying, well, what about the person? I'm talking about my deliverance. And there's probably a person in this group who's, who's hearing me say these words, who's maybe singing the psalm in public, and who then is maybe doubting the words of the psalm because their experience doesn't match up to what the psalm says or they doubt some of the uh, claims of the psalm. But nevertheless, they believe in God. You know, they've trusted in him. What about that kind of person? Well, David kind of peeks out in verse 24 and he says to that person, be strong. Let your heart take courage. All you who wait for the Lord, who are still waiting for deliverance, who are still waiting for rescue, who are still waiting for his goodness to shine through in the particular situation that you find yourself. That could be maybe the first time you found yourself in a painful, suffering kind of situation and you're waiting for deliverance. And to that person, he's saying, wait patiently on the Lord. Be confident because God is who he said he is. It could maybe be to the person who has faced countless trials like this and this final trial has finally gotten to them and caused them to doubt God's goodness. And he says, be strong. Let your heart take courage, all you who wait on the Lord. It's an amazing reminder that although we can intellectually believe things about God, that he's good, that he's faithful, that he's sovereign, he's in control of all things, that in many ways, are because we're creatures in creation, we know that our experience and our emotions and our lived life around us dictates so much about how we feel and how we think. And God is not insensitive towards that. Matter of fact, he is so sensitive towards that that he gives us a psalm book that walks us through all of that turmoil of emotions. And then he reminds us of the intellectual truth that we knew the whole time, that he's good, that he's loving, and that nevertheless, despite all of the, the pain that we're going through right now and the pain that we've had in recent memory, or if you don't have anything that comes to mind when I say those things, I can promise you on the basis of what the New Testament says, there will be something like that in the future. And so in laying yourself a theologically firm foundation so you can be mature and found as a workman approved, he's saying, be strong, let your heart take courage and wait confidently in the Lord. Now, as I close this, I wanna just, just revisit some of the confident claims that he makes about God. Because interwoven is kind of petitions and pleas, but he makes absolute theological claims about who God is. So I just want to read those in short order and just reflect on this is the God who David is worshiping and he's, he's saying this is what God is like. And don't let all the detail drown that out and it's worthwhile revisiting. He says that God is a refuge in verse 1. He says that God is righteous, verse 1. He says God listens personally to his people in verse 2. He says God is a sure fortress in verse 3. He says that God is his refuge in verse 4. He says that God is a confident place to go in times of need in verse 5. He says in verse 6 that God is trustworthy. In verse 7 that God is a source of joy. In verse 8 that God has proven himself to be what he says he is. In verse 9 he says God is gracious. In verse 10 he says that he is sinful. And as a reflection of that, you can say that he's saying God is not like that because he's asking God for that salvation. In verse 11, he's saying that God is his source of assurance. Not his neighbors, not his people around him. God is his source of assurance. Verse 12, he's saying he's forgotten. Verse 13, he's saying about God that God is the source of deliverance from all these schemes. Verse 14, he's saying God is trustworthy once again. And also in verse 14, he says God is his personal God. He says in verse 15 that God is sovereign over David's life and his death. That's the euphemism for what he says there, my time is in your hand. Verse 16, he says God is a source of blessing and God is a source of steadfast 
love. Verse 17, he says, God is uh, a source of confidence and assurance where he won't be put to shame. He says in verse 18 that God is one who speaks truth because God is the one who opposes the liar. In verse 19, he says God's goodness is abundant. In verse 20, he says that God is the shelter from the plots of men. Verse 21, he says God is a source of blessing, that he is a source of steadfast love, and that he has proven himself to show his steadfast love. Verse 22, he says that God listens to him when we cry for help. God listens to us when we cry to him. Verse 23, he says that God is a, a source of our affection where we can point our love. He also says that we are his saints, which is interesting because the very next thing he says is God preserves his saints. God preserves his faithful. So God is a source of preservation. And then he says to be strong, take courage, all who wait on the Lord. So verse 24 is really a summary statement of all of the claims previously about God. If God is all who he laid him out to be in the first 23 verses, then certainly we as Christians, despite our circumstance, despite our experience, can be strong to let our heart take courage, to speak and preach truth to ourselves, because we are the ones who wait on this God who is who David has put him forth to be. And this is a God who loves us dearly and who has set his affection upon us. And if we need an example of that, we can look no further than looking to Christ, who is the ultimate depiction of this faithfulness to rescue people from their destitute state. And if we remind ourselves of that kind of goodness of God, that picture of his goodness, we can certainly take confidence in kind of any affliction that we would face in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are indeed a faithful God. You have broken us. You have bruised us. You have sent us out into this world as sheep to be slaughtered. And yet... We can affirm confidently with David that you are good, uh, you are loving, uh, you are a God who is everything that scripture says you are. And Lord, if we do not believe that in our hearts, and if we fall short of what our theology is, would you give us grace and encourage our souls to cause our hearts to lift up to you and to take confidence in you? Would you give us courage and strength and confidence in you today throughout this week, Lord? And remind us regularly and gently of your faithfulness. Because although we know things about you that are true, Lord, often our, our lived experience falls so short of our theology. And would you be gracious to us in that moment to gently whisper uh, promises and uh, confidence to your people. We trust in you to preserve us and to guide us and to lead us into all truth. Pray this in your name. Amen.